Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Christine. Most people say that they would like to die in their own home, but very few people actually get their wish. Christine's dad did. Hello, Christine. Hi, Shirley. So, Christine, would you recommend encouraging a parent to have their wish to die at home? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. It was a positive experience for all of us in the family. Uh, it's not necessarily easy, though. So, you know, there's some... You, you would have to all agree to it, I think, because it demands quite a lot of the family who are caring for the, for the dying person. Right, but positive overall? Really positive overall. Really positive for Dad, really positive for my mother, it was at their home, and positive for us four children as well. Right, so let's go back a little bit. and okay. Tell me a bit about your dad. Um, my dad uh, was... Uh, a um, very family-oriented person who absolutely loved his his kids and grandchildren and um, nieces and nephews and he was quite a gregarious fellow and very sort of mum and dad had lived at their their house uh, for 39 years so they were very embedded in their neighbourhood and knew lots of people there so uh, the their home was really sort of dad's heart if you like and um he had been uh, quite an active person in his younger life. He was a tradesman, and um, for the last probably about 20 or 25 years before he retired, he worked at the University of Canterbury um, and mainly work, worked with postgraduate students. He was a technician in the civil engineering department, so he um, knew lots of people and was always interested in their stories and who they were and having them round, so that's how he was when he was well and that aspect of him obviously um, the gregariousness and the interest in people carried on while he was unwell but he couldn't be so active obviously so he was uh, largely based at home and people would come and visit him. So as he aged what sort of medical conditions did he have? Um, Dad had prostate cancer uh, which had spread um, he had early stage Alzheimer's, but um, only to the point where, for example, he couldn't drive the car any longer, and his short-term memory wasn't great. So he was still he still knew people and could still carry on conversations. Although probably most of the things he told us about or stories he told were repetitions of of events in his um, you know younger life, probably. Um, but he was a bit of a storyteller, so we just listened to those over and over again. <laughs> At what stage did he tell you where and how he'd like to die? I'm not 100% sure that he ever said that he wanted to die at home, but it was a 
combination of a number of things. For example, when he found out that he had Alzheimer's, obviously he was quite just distraught and unhappy about that and he made it very clear that he would be very unhappy if he had to end up being in a in a rest home and hospital level care. Um, he found out about the Alzheimer's just before like a few months before he found out about the cancer um, and when he found out about the cancer he interestingly I, I understand from a doctor friend that people with terminal illnesses can go one of two ways and some people become very gracious and very thankful for what they've got and determined to make the most of the life they've got left and that's how dad was which you know he may have had a bit of a tendency to be a bit of a cantankerous soul before then is that the other way (laughs) yeah (laughs) well the other way is to be sort of bitter and angry about the fact that Mm -hmm. you're dying um but dad wasn't like that he um he put a lot lot of energy into being positive and um it was mum who really didn't want him to be in hospital um, and so it was a combined uh, decision I think of theirs both um, she was more keen if possible to care for him at, for him at home because she thought it would be less stressful for everybody but including her because of course she was ageing she's ageing as well and it's difficult when you when you know your partner's dying mm. Yeah. At what stage did he know that he was dying? Um, well, I think we all at least knew it. He died in the um, late September of 2014. Um, and I think all of us, by the Christmas before that, had realised that that would probably be Dad's last Christmas because he was in pain um, much more and a little slowed down um, but um, it was not long after that that he was offered the opportunity he was told he couldn't have chemotherapy or surgery or anything but he was offered the opportunity of some radiotherapy which he had in about the maybe the March or April of the year before, so just a few months before he died and at that point uh, both he and mum were kind of determined that that would give him an opportunity to do some of the things he might have still wanted to do. And in the August of that year, because he's originally from Southland, um, from Gore, and we were living in Christchurch, um, in August of that year was a centenary of the rugby club that he used to play for in Gore, and he was really determined to get down there and to be here, you know, to still be alive for that. Um They'd done some other things um, the previous year. They'd gone up to Auckland. They'd never been to Waiheke Island, either of them, and they wanted to do that. Um, that also gave them the opportunity to catch up with some of my cousins who live in Auckland, and they really relished that. Um, but Mum committed to taking Dad down to this rugby centenary, and he certainly had slowed down quite a bit, was finding it a little uncomfortable to sleep in a bed, so we were sleeping in a lazy boy at home. So... She had a bit of trepidation about how it would all go for him and for her, but um, she took him down there and he really loved it. It was the oldest one there. He was a bit disappointed there weren't many more of his contemporaries around, but he always spoke about Gore as home. So I think it was also an opportunity to visit the place where he'd grown up and 
where his parents had lived when they died and, you know, mm-hmm. access all of those memories, including visiting the cemetery down there, visiting family members in the cemetery there. And um, he also had an old ballroom dancing teacher who was still alive and they visited her as well. So when they came back, he was really buoyed by it and, you know, they'd had a lovely time and mum felt like she'd managed quite well. But actually the day after he came back, he had an appointment with the oncologist which I went with mum and dad to, and the oncologist noticed that he had some growths on his face and down his arm and chest, and he said that dad had another kind of cancer, a neuroendocrine cancer, and dad was a bit uh, shaky that day. So he actually got admitted to hospital, um, which was quite a shock for him, I think. He was only in there perhaps just one night and part of the next day where they did a scan and were able to report that the cancer had spread and there was a different kind there as well. So I think at that point he accepted that he was dying and that was only about a month before he did die. So in physically in the house, where mm. did you set him up? Well, he, um, mum and dad's house, or where we'd grown up, um, had a, a kitchen which opened into a dining room which was kind of the family living area as well. And then, so he was set up in there. Um, he was sort of at the heart of the house, so that while people were up and around, if people came to visit, he was right there. And we, initially, he was set up on this uh, lazy boy chair, mm-hmm. and he was walking with a with a walking stick at that point because he was he was losing weight all the time and just was very tired and found it difficult to get around. He had at that point, he had someone coming in to help him shower. Uh, which was a which was a really good support, um, and yeah, he couldn't um, lie down. It wasn't comfortable lie down to lie flat on a bed. So that's how, where he was, and we'd you know put bed covers and things on for him to sleep at night, and and he could get up and down from that himself because he could control how the chair you know went up and down. Yeah, so um, it wasn't until much later, in fact, just the week. Of the when he died, that we actually got a um, hospital bed delivered and put in there. We took the dining room table and chairs out and, and put him there, so he was still right in the heart of things. So, describe the last week of his life. Um, so, I don't think any of us realised quite how quickly he was going to decline, but what was lovely in that last month is that. Some of our friends and family from out of town actually came because they knew he was dying. Um, so he, he was absolutely, totally happy with that. My mother's younger brother came over from Western Australia. Another one of mum's siblings came. Some of my cousins came. Um, various people came to visit him, and he, he was just sort of, you know, holding court, <laughs> which was lovely. Um, it's quite tiring for mum because um, some of them stayed with them as well, although they were also helpful. But um, it was it was on a Sunday and one of Dad's cousins and a couple of her kids were there visiting and my husband and our two kids went over, but I was really exhausted and so I said, I'm going to have a small afternoon nap and then I'm going to come, which is what I did. But Mum rang me later in the afternoon and said, look, I really think you should come. You should come now. And I thought, oh, heavens, something's changed. Um... So I, the reason I was having a nap at home was I knew that I was going to be staying the night with them because at this point we'd decided there are four children, 
four girls in our family and we all lived in Christchurch. So we decided one of us should stay every night and sort of take night about if we could. And it was my turn to stay the night, so I went over then and we had something to eat. And by this stage, Dad wasn't eating much, so that was another sign that he was really in decline. Um, Mum went off to bed. I went off to bed and... The dining room opens in the other direction from the kitchen to a lounge and I was sleeping in the lounge so I was in the room right next to Dad. And he went to sleep as usual on this chair and then in the night I heard this big thump and I realised that he'd fallen over. I got up and I couldn't find him because I didn't turn on the light. I looked, when I did turn on the light I looked and he'd fallen directly beside the chair and he had been wanting to go to the toilet, but he couldn't get up. And Mum and I couldn't actually lift him. So we called the ambulance, and they came, and they were really helpful and lovely, but they wanted to put him in hospital. And it was at that point that Mum and Dad both said no. So I realised that definitely we were going to keep him at home, and this was probably the beginning of the end. And... um. After that, he had a very fast decline, actually. Did the hospi- Did the ambulance staff accept that decision? They did. They talked to us about the realities of what that might mean. Um, but um, Dad had a very good GP who was very local to us, and so the next morning we contacted him and he came around and made an assessment and then he, he got all of the sort of hospice-level, palliative care-level care arranged so that we could actually you know, manage dad's pain and his toileting needs um, at home rather than having to have him in either a hospital or the hospice so that was great I mean they did and the ambulance people were fantastic and they did accept that you know we said look he's just been in hospital it's you know there's not much more they can do and we want to keep him at home if we can keep him comfortable and they were they accepted that. He hadn't actually hurt himself and you know, hadn't broken anything or done anything significant when he fell. He just fell from standing. Um, and once they were clear that he was comfortable again, once he was back in his bed slash mm-hmm. chair, <laughs> they were happy to go and leave us to it. So, yeah. And so things declined after that? Yeah, yeah, they did. He, so describe that process for us. Yeah, that was really quite distressing uh, for everyone. Dad became less able to eat and drink or less interested in it um, so he was really he'd always been quite a solid man you know because he'd worked manually all his life you know um, and he was just really wasting away in front of us um, the other thing uh, so and he began to be in pain that um, needed to start to be managing as well so he, he was relatively lucky that the pain didn't start till quite late in the process but um, his GP would come in quite often, who was a lovely man, and they had a really good rapport. Um, and uh, in Christchurch, there's an organisation called Nurse Maud, and they run a hospice, but they also run home care and palliative care at home, and that's who uh, came in. So they were specialist sort of end-of-life nurses who were fantastic, and they ended up putting in a line for Dad uh, that that morphine and, and, an, and another drug to help relax his muscles um, was able to be put through and they put in a catheter um, and because that was obviously where he couldn't go to the bathroom any longer either with our help or without it really 
Um, yeah, so that was all quite, you know, kind of hospital-level care, but able to be delivered at home. And was he able to mo- to administer his own no, pain relief? No, not by then. He could speak to us, though. He was conscious most of the time, but um, there were doses at measured intervals that could be put into the um, into the line that was in his. So he didn't have a pain pump like you might in hospital, but... Um, and we, we, every time we didn't think something was quite going right, we had immediate access to someone on the line at Nurse Maud and they'd send someone again if necessary and so on. Uh, we talked to them probably by about, the, so that the Sunday night was the fall when the ambulance came on. By Tuesday we were kind of realising that he was dying but not knowing how long it would take and so we tried to talk to them about that. They were fantastic and they were really honest and said they can't really tell but um, he was definitely dying in their opinion but they talked to us about what it might be like towards the end stages and things to look out for so because that sort of to help one Mm. (laughs) help family prepare for the fact that he's here and breathing now but he might not be soon sort of thing Um, and yeah and what was it like not being a nurse by profession, yeah. looking after your own yeah, father yeah. at home, knowing that he's dying? Well, it was strange, but it felt like a privilege as well to be able to give that kind of level of care to someone who'd shown so much care and love for me <laughs> over my life. He was a very hands-on dad, and he was always there when you needed help, whatever it was. He was very non- non-judgmental as well <laughs> most of the time <laughs> um, so but it was really odd because I'm a little bit squeamish I'm not that good with medical stuff um, but somehow I found because I loved him and he needed it that I could help do things like change the catheter bag and you know do things like that um, and someone said to me oh you're really good at this you could have been a nurse and I said but I didn't <laughs> think I could do it for someone I didn't love and did they show you how yeah, to do that? Yeah, the first time I had to do various things, the nurse would be there and they'd do it and then they'd get me to you know, have a go the next time. And Yeah, definitely, yeah. They were very supportive and helpful. They were fantastic people, just so knowledgeable but very warm and supportive as well. So tell me about the last hours of your dad's okay. life. So um, towards... The end of the week, he was sleeping more and less able to to um, talk. But um, at one point, um, even when he was conscious, we realised he couldn't verbalise things anymore. So that was a sign that you know things were going downhill. And it really, it really all happened within the month so but probably by about Thursday we realized within a month sorry within a week by about the Thursday we realized that he was really going down he was needing more pain relief and um, I think on the Friday we kind of realized that what we would what we'd done earlier in the week was just sleep alongside in a room alongside him but as the week went on we were sort of sitting beside his bed doing shifts if you like through the night and the day yeah and 
on the Friday night, I volunteered to stay up for the first shift and then my sister, who was going to take over, was sleeping in the room next to me. We were just going to swap places. But we'd been told what the signs might be when he was coming to the end and we'd been given, you know, there were measured doses of morphine and we'd been told that when he's very near the end... When he, but he's in pain and you administer another dose of morphine, that might actually be what ends his life, if you like, or the, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. So we were aware that it could have been by then because he was unconscious from some point on the, during the day on Friday. Um, we, thought we, we thought he could hear us, but, um, you know, he wasn't able to indicate anything at all except when he was in pain his body would you know move and he'd moan so you knew that there was he needed some more medication um they also told us that his breathing would slow down that there'd be gaps between his breaths and at some time like about midnight I felt that that was kind of starting to happen so I called my sister from the next room and I asked her to go and wake up mum and my other two sisters so that we could all be there and talk to him and, you know, hold his hand and hold his, each other's hands, if you like. And um, by that point, I I, helped, I administered the last little dose of painkiller um, and then his breathing did slow, spaces between his breaths, and, you, and we weren't sure was that it, you know, but then he'd take another laboured breath um, and at one point, just very peacefully, he stopped taking breaths. And that was it. He'd, he'd gone, and we were all there, and we'd all been able to talk to him and tell him what he meant to us. And But also we gave him permission um, to go. How did you do that? I said, well, don't, you know, we know that you're suffering and that you're in pain, and we're all here with you. And we want you to know that if you need to stop breathing, if you need to go, that's really fine. That's absolutely fine. So there you were, you and your siblings and your mum, all around the bed of your dad as he took his last breath. In our family home. In your family home. It was lovely. I mean, desperately sad, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it was actually quite lovely as well. Then what happened? Um, so we thought, oh, well, it's the middle of the night, so we're not going to ring anyone. <laughs> and we we just thought that we'd wait till the morning. We'd ring his GP and ask him to come round. And he did that. In the morning, about 8 o'clock the next day, Bill came and certified, you know, wrote the death certificate. And um, we didn't actually call the... Um, Undertaker straight away, we, you know, we like called our husbands and kids <laughs> and um, they all came round to say goodbye to him as well. Um, I'd let my husband know in the night that that had happened, but, you know, said bring the kids round first thing in the morning and, yeah. So there was a further family gathering yeah, yeah. at the house yeah. after he had yeah, died. Yeah, to say goodbye to him for them, to give them that opportunity to see him like that rather than seeing him in his coffin. Because they'd been there the day before when he was alive and 
when he'd been unconscious. So they, so they sort of knew it was coming too. But yeah, that was important, I think, to all of us, to, for the extended family to be able to see him at home before he got taken away. <laughs> yeah. As far as his funeral, what happened with that? Um, okay, so he'd been um, taken by the undertakers, uh, the, you know, within maybe by the afternoon after he died. It's about one o'clock in the morning he died, and the afternoon they came, took him away, and he came home again in his coffin, uh, which we had in the lounge. It was a bit more of a formal room, and um, and. Uh, wider family and friends came round and we had a sort of little gathering the night before his funeral at our house um, my parents are Catholics so um, they had a priest there um, said a sort of couple of words of blessing and everyone could say something if they wanted to um, and then um, his funeral was the following day at the family parish church um, we had a couple of daughters and a couple of grandsons and a couple of uh, nephews carrying the coffin and um, you know family involvement in that as well and then we had a big gathering at the church hall after that with family and friends um, interestingly he wanted to be cremated so that's what was happening and, it, and at one point the undertakers said well we've got to go and take him now and we had been in planning to go with him and mum said uh, no, we're going to stay here with all these people. We've said our goodbyes. You know, his body can go to the cremation place and we picked up his ashes, you know, some weeks later. So, yeah. And then people came back to Mum and Dad's house. Thank you so much for telling your story, Christine. It's it's unusual, as I say, for people to get their wish to die mm. at home. Mm. And your dad had you and your family around him all the way on that journey. I hope it becomes more usual for people. Thank actually. you. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Cafe Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.